University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Does the name Genghis Khan sound familiar? He created uh, one of, if not the world's largest empire in human history. The Mongolian Empire stretched from as far west as the Korean Peninsula, as far east as modern-day Ukraine, as far south as the coast of modern-day Iraq, and as far north as modern-day Siberia. But the story uh, I want to tell you this morning is not about Genghis Khan, but about one of his descendants, a woman named Kahutha. As she uh, can imagine, she is a descendant of the great Genghis Khan, means that all sorts of male suitors always were knocking at the door to marry her. But here's where it gets interesting. She refused to marry her suitor unless he could beat her in a wrestling match. And each time a suitor wanted to challenge her, she required them to bring a wager of some horses in case that she was the winner. It's said that she had tens of thousands of horses. <laughs> Because all these male suitors would come, and they would never defeat her. I love what a bold and audacious act in an age of gender suppression of the 13th century this woman held. Every day, you and I have the opportunity to do something audacious. It's called prayer. We're in our series, Audacious Radical Prayers That Will Transform Your Life. And each week, we're examining a different type of prayer and why it's critical for thriving. And we're not just learning about different types of radical prayers, but we're challenging ourselves to pray them each day to, uh, to enable a fiercer and deeper journey with God. And this morning, we're looking at the audacious nature of a prayer of restoration. And for this, we look at the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now, if you recall uh, from a few weeks ago as we were digging through First and 2 Kings, we learn that these books are a continuation of First and Second Samuel. It's just telling the story of the many descendants of, Abraham, of David that came to the throne, that his family would be established on the throne as God promised him in Second Samuel chapter 6. And there's some really bad kings that came to the throne. In fact, the corrupt leadership of the kings is eventually what led to the destruction of Israel and Judah by the hands of the Syrians and the Babylonians, and eventually leading to the exile of thousands of of Hebrew people to foreign lands. Now, what's fascinating about our passage this morning is it's not about one of Israel's kings, but a great commander of one of their foes. So take a look at verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, and he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Aram was a country cited in our text. It was part of the Syrian region. The capital was Damascus. Coincidentally, the group is credited with the language of Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. It's believed that Aram was part of the Assyrian empire that dominated the Middle East in this period. And so Naaman would have been considered an enemy or a rival to the Hebrew people. And yet, the biblical narrator presents him with such flattering language about his skills and his reputation and his valor and his success. From things that we learn shortly in our text, 
Naaman was a very rich and influential man. He was a commander of a great army. But there's just one problem. Naaman had leprosy. Leprosy is a disease that produces scales and inflammation and, and lesion. It's a horrendously debilitating, painful skin condition. A person wouldn't want to bathe because of the open sores on their wounds uh, because it was so incredibly painful. And over time, this also caused some serious nerve damage. And since a person could live many years with this condition, it would eventually, lose to the loss of, eventually lead to the loss of appendages and limbs. Eventually, one's face would become disfigured and begin to fall out. One's eyes would begin to spoil. So needless to say, a leper was a sight for sore eyes. Imagine, here is Naaman, who is in the prime of his career and status and influence, only to be told that he has this horribly incurable disease. Can you connect with Naaman? Is there something that feels broken inside you? Most likely, no one in this space has a degenerative skin condition in which your flesh is literally rotting off you. However, we might have struggles with unseen health issues. Others, a nagging injury that prevents you from living your life the way that you want to. For others, there is an internal and unseen struggle called anxiety and depression. Every day feels like this ubiquitous cloud is just following you around wherever you go. And so for some, relationships feel broken, whether it be a marital relationships or relationships with your children or relationships with your parents or your friendships, all the lies and betrayal and exclusion and hidden emotions and manipulation and disappointment and on and on. For others, it's age, whether too young or too old, you feel like you're invaluable or incapable, or maybe it's the feeling uh, that you get from others. For some, you feel like you have this intangible things uh, within you. you. You lack success in the job that you want, to earn the money you need, to build the relationships you desire. And still for um, some, there's, that goes beyond the surface of societal woes and physical ailments and beyond uh, the surface is a matter of, of a mind and a heart. Rather, there's a sense of brokenness within your soul. And whether it is the choices of others, the circumstances of your life, or the bad decisions you might have made, that place in which brokenness seems untouchable. There is no invasive act to repair the feeling that's deep down in the core of your existence. As Leo Tolstoy put in Anna Karenina, Doctoring her seemed to be an absurd as putting together a piece of a broken vase. Her heart was broken. Why would they try to cure her with pills and with powder? Naaman needs healing and restoration. He, he can't go on like this. He, he has to live life. He, he has to set success to attain. He has something that he needs to be fixed in his life. We all want our brokenness healed. We all want restoration. But where do we go for such healing? What thing can we do to restore us to what we once were? How can my soul especially experience repair? It so happens that the captive servant girl in Naaman's house hears of the commander's plight. She's an Israelite. And she knew that not just that her God was the answer that Naaman needed for brokenness, but he knew, she knew of a famous prophet in her country that could heal him. 
Just to note, once again, the power of intercession and the value of praying for others. When we bring others before God in prayer, lives are changed. And the servant girl reports to Naaman's wife, who reports to Naaman, and in turn he lobbies the Assyrian king to let him travel to Israel to be healed, to find this prophet. And he learned the respect and value of Naaman by his king because the king not only sends him off to be healed, but gives him a royal letter to carry to the king of Israel. And Naaman took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of cloth. And since we don't calculate in talents and shekels and garments, uh, one biblical scholar states that Naaman brings with him several million dollars worth of currency. Naaman was a man of success and resources. He, he was ready to pay this famous prophet whatever the cost. And he was doing whatever he needed to do to improve the possibility of his healing and success. And when Naaman arrived before the king of Israel, giving him the letter, the king suspected foul play. He believed this was a ruse of the Assyrians to send their great commander into Israel with an, an entourage of troops. I mean, all of us would think that. What was also telling about Naaman's meeting with the king of Israel was the king of Israel's lack of faith to believe that his God would heal this foreigner, would heal this pagan. Remember, this is a period of unfaithfulness where the king of Israel were a microcosm of the lack of faith of God's people. And not only did the Israelite king not think that this man could be healed by God, but certainly not a man who is a pagan or a Jew. But as fate would have it, the very prophet that Naaman came to see was in the king's court. And he sends word to the king to send Naaman to him to be healed. And we pick up the story in verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. And said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went away in rage. Can you imagine being a man of Naaman's stature and success and resources, going through all the trouble of lobbying your king, let alone the king of a foreign adversary, and bring all this money just to find out that the prophets of great fame want you to take a bath seven times? A rinse and repeat cure. Come on. Naaman must have felt like such a fool. He must believe that the prophet was mocking him or playing some sort of trick on him. Surely this was not the answer to his problem. Why couldn't he just do this at home? As one biblical scholar noted that since Naaman was not an Israelite, he would have been unfamiliar with the Jewish tradition of ritual bath. In fact, the Leviticus laws lay out instructions of how to conduct ritual cleansing of one of skin diseases. Most likely, Naaman would have expected Elisha to, to come out of his house to perform some sort of ritual or just a flick of the wrist of magic, and it would be healed. And, and when Naaman hears that the servant tells him, he gets quite angry and decides to go back home unhealed. But before he can start on his home journey, it says this in verse 13. Naaman's servant went to him and said, 
My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered him, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept this thing. And even though Naaman argued, urged him, he refused. Naaman's healing is one of the most remarkable stories in all of the Bible. Not only because of the, the amazing nature of being cured of an incurable disease, but the fact that it was a foreigner, an enemy of God's people. And yet his faith in God went beyond reasoning to experience restoration. So what Naaman's story teaches us about restoration is, is the first thing is that sometimes God's ways of restoring are nowhere remotely close to where we are. Geographically, Naaman had to leave the comfort and security of his estate and his country, traveled more than 250 miles across hostile territory on a hope and prayer that a rival king would permit him an audience with the prophet in question. How, how often do we want to change what happens to exactly where we are? How often do we expect God to meet us right where we are in our comfort and our security. If God's going to do something in my life, then God's got to come to my home turf to make it happen. And if we truly believe that God can heal and transform and, and restore our lives, just how far are we willing to go? Are we willing to leave the territory of familiarity and comfort and security for the sake of healing and transformation? It's amazing how far we might go to get what we want. But what about if God calls us metaphorically, theologically, geographically to places we didn't expect in order to be restored? Would we go? Do you remember the comedian Andy Kaufman? You probably remember him from his role in the TV show Taxi. Kaufman actually died at a really uh, young age of 35 of lung cancer. And many people thought that his death was just one of another long history of practical jokes that he played on his friends. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, he sought treatment in every possible way. And when nothing seemed to be working, he got on a plane and flew all the way to the Philippines to this obscure village where he heard there was a great healer curing people. When he met the healer, Andy quickly learned that this guy was as much of a showman as Kaufman. He was actually using the organs of animals as stage props to pretend that he was pulling the cancerous tumors out of people's bodies. But it's not that God is calling us to places different than where we are. Sometimes God's ways of restoring are not with the resources and knowledge we possess. Do you remember Naaman brought a lot of money? I mean, a lot of money to pay God's prophet whatever it would cost to heal him. And even before that, Naaman would have recognized that his stature and his experience and his, his locale was 
was something that he could offer up to be healed. And, and then when it gets to Elisha's house, he, he expects, again, a flick of a wrist or a wand, a, a few words of incantation, and he'll be healed. But it's to his shock and his dismay that Elisha called him to the River Jordan. And beyond Naaman, do you really recall the king of Israel's response to Naaman's request? He couldn't imagine healing was possible, let alone for this foreign adversary. Surely God, if God could heal, would spend God's time on one of God's chosen people. And if we can recognize the brokenness in our life, I wonder if we could recognize the ways that we try to heal and restore ourselves. Naturally, we depend on our wisdom and our understanding and our experience and our social circles and influence and our connections and our resources to get healing done as soon as possible. But what if the restoration God desires to bring into our lives and to our soul is not with the resources and knowledge we possess? Do we have faith to open ourselves up to the possibilities of God's way of doing things might stretch us and quite literally require faith from us. And then there's often our response to our brokenness in other people's lives, like the king of Israel, in which we don't believe that God can bring healing into this person's life, let alone this horrible person with all their horrible choices. Do we believe that God values people who do not look like us? do not believe like us, do not live like us. And, and it's not the fact that God's restoration happens in a place that, that calls us out of our comfort and security and with the methods of resources and knowledge beyond us, but sometimes God's way of restoring is, is in no way familiar or within our understanding of practical. Again, who heals leprosy from taking a bath seven times in a river and not just any river, but this river. I wonder if we've ever thought about how God can work and move within us. I wonder if we can't let God do God's things because it doesn't seem practical. It doesn't make sense to us how God would move and work in such a way. Why should I come all this way just for God to ask me to do this? How often do we want to leave and find another way or not bother because the moment demands faith in God rather than faith in ourselves? Sometimes God's way of restoring is in no way familiar or within our understanding of practical. Have you ever heard of hobbits? Hobbits are simple folk. They concern themselves not with the outside world, they certainly do not go on any ventures, nor anything out of the ordinary or unexpected. So it was no surprise when Gandalf the Grey showed up at Bilbo Baggins' door stating, I'm looking for someone to share an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. That Bilbo refused to listen and invite the old wizard into his house. If you're looking at me with crazy bewilderment, it's because you have no idea what I'm talking about on J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And let's just pause right there. If you've not read the books or seen in the movies, I don't know what your plans are this afternoon. Come to my house and we'll sit down and watch all the films, all 18 hours of them together so that you can be well informed of one of the greatest stories of all time. 
So when Bilbo was invited to go out on an adventure, excitement and possibly incineration by Smog the dragon, glory and riches, Bilbo asked Gandalf one simple question. Can you promise that I will come back? And I love Gandalf's response because he says, no, and if you do, you will never be the same. I think the last thing that Naaman's story can teach us about the restoration about God is we will never be the same as we were before. Restoration is hard. It means that we have to be vulnerable and admit defeat. We have to come humbly before God and admit our weakness and brokenness. It's giving up control and allowing God to do work in our lives. Change is hard. We don't like admitting we're wrong. But there is so much freedom when we can come before a God that wants to transform us from the inside out. If we only knew how much God's love and mercy is for us. God's work is in our brokenness. Yes, even the best of us have spiritual brokenness. It's part of being human. And God wants us to realize how incapable we are by our own standards and resources to fix ourselves deep within our soul. And yet the God of creation desires nothing more than to fill us with love and hope and joy and peace and goodness and restoration. God's goal is to transform you into the image of Christ. And when we're transformed by the Holy Spirit, we have new desires. The Holy Spirit helps us produce good fruit or fruits of the Spirit. We are clothed with compassion, love, righteousness, patience, gentleness, and grace. But will we believe or will we be wrapped up in how we think we ought to be healed? Will we depend on our own resources to mend our brokenness or will we trust in ways that are beyond our understanding? Will we have faith to go where God is leading us, even if that place is unfamiliar? As the great J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, The road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. The power of restoration begins with audacious prayer. Throughout this series, we've been ending our sermons with prayers that correspond with the given theme of the morning, and repeating these words does not mean praying them, but allowing our heart and our mind and our soul to sink into the meaning of these words as you lift them to God who hears, that's a powerful act of faith. So my challenge to you this morning is that you not just hear these words or pray these words this morning, but you put them into practice each week. The prayers that we're offering on Sunday morning are featured on the church website and the church newsletter. You can read them throughout the week, and we challenge you to pray them each day. So I invite you this morning to join me in this prayer in your soul while I pray it for us. This is a prayer vessel that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am weak in faith. Strengthen thou me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent that my love may go out to my neighbor. I do not have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and am able to trust thee altogether. O Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in thee. In thee I have sealed the treasures of all that I have. I am poor, thou art rich, 
and didst come to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner. Thou art upright. With me there is an abundance of sin. In thee the fullness of righteousness. Therefore I will remain with thee of who I can receive, but to whom I might not give. Amen.